Welcome to episode 11 of Shellshocked. This week, we'll be talking about the theory of evolution. And for our guest interview, we're not messing around. Marilyn will be talking with famed anthropologist and evolution defender Dr. Eugenie Scott. Later, I'll have a science report about some curious findings in a Russian experiment breeding tame foxes that may shed light on the evolution of the modern dog. And finally, we'll end with a good news report from Marilyn about a young man who's making waves in the life of presidential hopeful Bobby Jindal by protecting the teaching of good science in the state of Louisiana. So if you're all ready and fit it into your ecological niches, brace yourselves for shell shock. Welcome to Shell Shock. You know, Marilyn, when I first got the idea for this podcast, one of my rules was going to be that I wanted to cover topics that were fresh and new and, you know, not the ones that it seemed like everyone had done a million times. And today I'm breaking that rule. <laughs> <laughs> Rules were meant to be broken. I guess so. In, de- in my defense, I have a good reason for that. Actually, I have a couple of good reasons. One of them is that it is the anniversary of the Kitzmiller versus Dover case. And I know we'll be hearing your interview with Dr. Eugenie Scott later in the show about that. And the second reason is these goddamn creationists will not stop. <laughs> they keep on and on. So... I thought we would go through just a few of the crazy creationist arguments and, uh, you know, maybe talk about what some of the defenses are. So I was doing a bit of research and I ran across a website where they talk about this. And, you know, it's 15 of the most common arguments that creationists make. And this is from 2002 and it was published in uh, Scientific American. Mm hmm. So I thought we would just talk about some of those. Um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is my experience when I first came across the idea of creationism. And I was probably about 17 years old, believe it or not. And I know that a lot of people out there are probably thinking, what? I've heard about it since I was a kid. I guess I just got lucky. I didn't pay any attention to any of the arguments against evolution. And I'd never really heard of creationism until one day when this kid who was quite a bit younger than I was, he may have been 12 or 13, said to me, well, you know, that's as crazy as evolution. And I said, what's, what's crazy about evolution? And he said, you don't really believe that, do you? Oh, my goodness. And I said, you don't? And it was, my mind was sort of reeling, like, not that I was really going to defend it or anything, but I thought, there's an argument here? What is it? And the first thing that he came up with totally blew my mind. He said, well, all you have to do is look at the laws of physics, the second law of thermodynamics. And I thought, whoa, what's that? Like... I don't know anything about physics, the second law of thermodynamics. And he said, yeah, well, if you don't know about that, he said kind of condescendingly, the second law basically says that everything is in a constant state of breaking down. It's in a constant state of becoming less than it was before. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's, you know, snowflakes or, you know, chemicals or whatever entropy is a physical concept you have to be aware of. And I'm sitting here being preached to by this 12-year-old about the second law of thermodynamics, which I was not prepared to answer. And I thought, okay, second law of thermodynamics, that must be it. Okay, maybe there's something to this. So then I went and looked it up. 
This was pre-internet, so I had to literally go look it up. In your Encyclopedia Britannica, maybe? There you go. (laughs) We didn't, we weren't rich enough to have one of those, but there were libraries. So I went to the library and I look it up. And the first thing I figure out is, well, yeah, the second law applies unless you're adding energy. And instantly, this 17-year-old brain of mine comes up with, right up there in the sky, there's the energy, the sun. Mm-hmm. Done. End what? of argument. Why didn't this kid do that? As long as the sun is offering energy to our planet, of course living things can become more complex. Yes, because when you first said that, I was like, if, well, if he knew about the second law of thermodynamics, you would think, you know, he's a critical thinker and stuff like that. But um, then when you really get to the the fact that they don't look things up, it, it just seems that they're reciting things that they've heard. I can almost guarantee you that's the case. And I bet it came from his church, Mm -hmm. which is really creepy to think that they're going, hey, Jesus and Moses. And now we're going to start on the second law of thermodynamics. Like, where's that in the Bible? Why are you even talking about that in church? (laughs) Except that for some reason, certain parts of science threaten people's religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And when you start threatening their ideology, they do start mixing it into the message. So, yeah, I can almost guarantee he was he was one of those, you know, evangelical Christian types. So I can almost guarantee that that's where he was getting it. Of course, that's a little more complex than you get in everyday life. More likely what you'll get is people throwing at you the old argument. Well, evolution's just a theory. Mm hmm. That's one that gets talked about by skeptics all the time. It's one of those old hat arguments. It's pretty easy to knock down because all you have to do is ask them, well, what's you know, what's the definition of a theory? Gravity is just a theory. There you go. Yeah. They don't often apply it to that one, right? Yeah, right? It's Generally speaking, it's just evolution they apply it to. And, you know, I always tell my students, if you put the word just in front of theory as a modifier, I instantly know you don't know what a theory is. Mm. Because theories are not, you know, just these guesses yeah. that people make. The National Academy of Sciences defines a scientific theory like this. A well-substantiated explanation of some aspect of the natural world that can incorporate facts, laws, inferences, and tested hypotheses. So it's not just a guess. And and I think that's the problem is in layman's terms. We, you know, oh, I have a theory about that, you know, and, and people are, it, it's different than a scientific theory. Right. And so I think that's where it probably comes from. So I often say things like the fact of evolution rather than the theory of evolution, <laughs> just to get around that problem of theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you often also hear creationists making the argument, nobody's ever seen a living organism evolve. Okay, first of all, it wouldn't matter if we had never seen a living organism evolve, because all sciences frequently rely upon indirect evidence to figure things out. I was looking this up online, and in that same Scientific American uh, article, they talk about physics, and they say physicists can't see subatomic particles directly. So instead, they verify the existence of these particles by watching for telltale tracks that the particles leave in cloud chambers. Mm -hmm. So that's indirect observation. So who comes along in a church and says particles don't exist subatomic particles can't be true because after all no one's ever actually seen one i've never heard that argument right um and i thought that um and i'm not sure if you know but that uh we have seen um things in fruit flies 
Right. Over certain generations. Right. Yeah. So as yeah. I said, first oh. of all, it wouldn't matter if we hadn't. Okay. But secondly, scientists have seen <laughs> the living organisms evolve. They, for instance, made it happen in laboratories, which is really exciting. And you're right, fruit flies are a great example mm -hmm. because they're you know easy to keep. They replicate quickly. They have a short life cycle. And so you can speed up the process of evolution in them. And they've even created fruit flies in 35 generations that won't and can't breed with other fruit flies. Hmm. That's speciation, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's creating a new species, a subspecies of fruit fly, because they can't replicate with them. They can't have sex with them and have babies. In fact, in this case, they won't. So they're kind of stuck up fruit flies, too. <laughs> they think they're better than the other fruit flies. <laughs> I was going to say, they're going to, yeah, they were going to discriminate. Uh, probably my favorite, just to kind of round out this discussion, is uh, the argument that mathematically it's inconceivable that anything as complicated as a protein, let alone a person, uh, could spring up by chance. So that's the argument made by creationists. It's a really weak argument, by the way, especially since um, in the 1980s uh, at Glendale College, there was a man named Richard Hardison who wrote a computer program that did something very special. We've all heard the argument that if you have, you know, an infinite number of monkeys typing on an infinite number of typewriters or keyboards for those youngsters out there uh, for an infinity, you'll eventually get all the works of Shakespeare. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's not exactly how evolution works because evolution operates not completely randomly. Yes, mutations can happen randomly, but the environment decides which mutations stay and which ones go. So we don't have complete randomness here. So mm -hmm. knowing that, what Hardison did was he wrote a computer program back in the 1980s, mind you, so really early in computer science, that would do basically the same kind of thing. And what he was looking for originally was the phrase, to be or not to be. 13 letters all together, to be or not to be. Because they always say all the works of Shakespeare, so he takes them, one of the most famous lines from all of Shakespeare, to be or not to be. So how long do you think it took for that phrase to show up? Uh, a year? 10 years? A week? Um... Uh... I'm going to guess a year. 90 seconds. 90 seconds? In 90 yeah. seconds, wow. his sad little 1980s computer <laughs> produced with his little program in just 336 iterations, to be or not to be. So he wow. decided to let it run for a while. He let it run for four and a half days. And at the end of those days, the entire play of Hamlet had been printed out. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine for in just four and a half days, so not an infinite number of typewriters, just one, not an infinite number of monkeys, just one, Richard Hardison. He's not a monkey, but he is an ape. He's a human. And it creates the whole work of Shakespeare. It's incredible. And so people then look at us and they say, no, nope, no, nope, you can't get that through randomness. Yeah. yeah, you can, because it's not totally random. Evolution's not completely random. One of the weakest arguments of all. Uh, the, one I, the one I love is the, um, well, if we descended from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? Oh, my God. 
<laughs> okay, first of all, yeah. ask them what a monkey is, because I bet yeah. what they're talking about is a chimp. I even hear scientists make this mistake. Mm-hmm. When they're talking about chimpanzees, they start making jokes like, I'll be a monkey's uncle, and I want to tear my hair out, because I think, <laughs> no wonder we can't get people to accept evolution. People don't know the difference between a chimp and a monkey. monkey. They're completely mm-hmm. different. There are four great apes left on the planet. Chimps, orangutans, gorillas, and humans. And yes, there are a couple of different types of chimps, but still, the point is the same. And then there's the lesser apes, and way on down that evolutionary line, you have other primates like monkeys. So, yeah, why are there still monkeys? Why do you still have cousins? Because your cousins didn't disappear when you got created. They are your cousins in the same way that monkeys are your cousins. It's so easy. I said that to my mother one time. I said, you know, it's so infuriating because these... These anti-evolution people, these creationists, are always saying, you know, oh, well, why are there still monkeys? And I said, it's as if they don't realize that you don't descend from your cousins. And she said, well, some of them people did. (laughs) 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 Okay, it might be Uh, true, but still, it just blurs the lines even more. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't understand it. I guess, you know, my thinking is, well, you know, why is it so abhorrent? To to be to have evolved from, um, you know, animals. I don't I don't understand that. Or uh, even that we are animals. Yeah. True. True. I walked by some students in a in a study group the other day, and I clearly heard one of the young women say, "Okay." She turns to this young man. What do you think? Do you think we're animals? As if they had been debating this issue. And I so wanted to interject and say, what else do you think we are? Minerals? But I stayed out of it. I wanted them to continue the learning process. But yeah, I don't understand what's so abhorrent, except that some people take a literal interpretation of the Bible. They see the whole Adam and Eve story. They don't see any chimps in there. They don't see any Australopithecines or, you know, (laughs) they don't see Lucy in there. They see Adam and Eve. And they think this has to literally be true. And so for all those other people who say that their theory is correct, they're also saying my theory is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Yeah. Um, it, I was telling you before that um, I used to live in Melbourne, Florida for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, that is about 45 minutes directly south from Cape Canaveral. And so um, it's... a uh, a big military community, um, and I would drive uh, to some um, homes where I was working with a billboard uh, prominently displayed on the side of I-95, and it's still there. Um, I don't know who pays for it, actually. I should uh, look that up. Um, Evolution is a fairy tale for adults. Wow. The irony is dripping from that story. <laughs> so I, you know, it, you would think near Cape Canaveral, here we have the space shuttle, you know, science, go, NASA going up in space, you know, all, but no, you know, just a, a, a very sheltered community, I think, there. I think that is part of it. And they try their best to shelter not only themselves, but their children Mm -hmm. from this. And that's what offends me the most. I mean, it's one thing to have your beliefs. And if you want to just, you know, sit there and deny science, I guess that's your right. But I draw the line at children. Children don't have the same kinds of power and, you know, decision-making ability that adults do. And so when their parents come along and say, I think that's incorrect, and I am not going to allow my child to hear about that, 
I'm sorry, that's just, I draw the line there. You don't get to stunt your child's intellectual growth and also stunt their future because these kids are going to get out of those high schools where they're trying to prevent the teaching of things like evolution and they're going to have to try to compete in the marketplace of ideas, whether it's at university or in their job somewhere, and they're going to be ill-prepared to do that. Most of the other, and, and even, you know, when they go to universities, in, even in Florida, in these pockets of things, you know, the university towns are usually um, much different, and um, they, they will, they're, they're going to stand out, and they're not going to be prepared to accept a lot of the thinking that goes on. And yeah. in other places. You know, a couple of months ago, I was asked to give the commencement address at um, a local high school. It's local to the college where I work. And so after the, the speech that I gave, uh, one of the women who worked for this high school, she came over to me and she said, so we're going to go over for a reception if you'd like to join us for coffee and, you know, cookies and things like that. I said, I'd be, you know, I'd be honored to. And then this woman said, oh, and I also want to introduce you to my husband. I said, oh, it's wonderful to meet you. And the talk that I gave was sort of a, an allegory comparing the rest of their lives to the human brain and how they should be more like the human brain. Like, for instance, how the brain works in concert, but also there are different parts of the brain that do certain functions, so they need to learn to work as a team and individually, that sort of thing. So he says to me, God, the brain is just so fascinating, isn't it? And I said, I couldn't agree more. That's why I love psychology. And he said, it's just so amazing. And it's so complicated. You just know it couldn't have evolved. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and this man is married to a woman who's an administrator at this high school. And I said, you're not serious, are you? And he said, well, yeah, of course. I mean, even the eye couldn't have evolved. I mean, what good is half an eye? And I remembered, I didn't say it, I stopped myself, but I remembered back to Julia Sweeney, the, the comedian who did a show called Letting Go of God. Mm -hmm. And in it, she talks about this irreducible complexity argument that says, well, the eye, the human eye in particular, is so complex that if you take even one component out of it, it doesn't work anymore. So how could it have built up to the, that complexity when you could just remove one thing like the lens or something and it doesn't work anymore. And she said, so the argument always was, what good is half an eye? Well, I looked into it and it's about half as good. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't stop working. It just works better with all the components that are currently there. I didn't have time to give him that lecture and I didn't want to give him the short and sweet smart ass version. So I just said, well, you know, you might want to read some books about that. There's a lot of great stuff out there. Yeah. And I mean, it, that's what I always tell my students when we talk about the brain and all the, you know, all the weird things it does with information, you know, and you would think if it was intelligently designed, it wouldn't make these mistakes that yeah. it makes, you know, and, and that's the part of it that, you know, it, it has evolved in such a way that we, you know, we can't stop it from doing these things, you know, right now. Great point. So, I was... Everything down to the frontal lobe being right in the front where someone can bash <laughs> you in the head with a rock. Yeah, it's not I wouldn't well put protected. it there. Yeah. No, that's not intelligent design. Yeah. That's design you get with evolution, where it's sort of pushed forward and you can't work backward. I would have put it, like, up under the armpit where you can protect <laughs> it like a football when you're running. <laughs> Some place where you can't get to it, where some idiot can't just walk up and smash you in the head and destroy yeah, your life. Yeah. Or make the skull much, much stronger, right? Yeah. yeah. Or something like that. So, 
or you know yeah. fact that an image comes into your eye uh, upside down you know in, yeah. in your, why in right your brain. i mean why and then we get this process of accommodation where it flips it back yeah. up but why? why and why have the optic nerve connect to the back of the eye so that you have blind spots there that's really bad designing <laughs> go back to the drawing board yeah. there are animals on this planet that don't have that problem yeah when did we get those eyes we can't see out our periphery i mean yeah you know it, it just makes me realize that they don't understand so many, or they don't know the the little nuances of so many things when somebody makes that kind of statement. Yeah, and you know that's why exposure and education is so important because if they're exposed to these ideas, not ran them down their throat and tell them Jesus never existed or your religion is wrong and this one's right or or atheism or anything, just give them the facts and say okay compare your ideas to these ideas and then encourage them to gain the tools of critical thinking that will allow them to do that in a meaningful way. That's your best hope for getting people to accept the truth. Unfortunately, their game plan on the other side is to prevent them from ever getting that comparison. Yes, they want to stop the information because they know that the information doesn't fit in with uh, their ideals. And that's what the Dover trial was all about. Correct. And that's a great segue into our interview. So let's start the interview. Okay. Our guest interview this week is with Dr. Eugene Scott, an American physical anthropologist, a former university professor, and has been one of the strongest voices challenging the teaching of young earth creationism and intelligent design in schools. From 1987 to 2013, Dr. Scott served as the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, a pro-evolution nonprofit science education organization. Dr. Scott was appointed the NCSE's executive director in 1987, the year in which teaching creation science in American public schools was deemed illegal by the Supreme Court in Edwards v. Aguilard. Dr. Scott is nationally recognized as a proponent of church-state separation and serves on the National Advisory Council of Americans United for Separation of Church and State and other organizations. She has worked nationwide to communicate the scientific method to the general public and to improve how science as a way of knowing is taught in school. In 2009, Dr. Scott became the first ever recipient of the Stephen J. Gould Prize, from the Society for the Study of Evolution. More recently, on April 4th, 2014, Dr. Scott received a Distinguished Service to Science Education Award from the National Science Teachers Association. And perhaps one of the coolest honors, I think, on July 12th, 2014, asteroid 249540, Eugenie Scott, discovered April 18th, 2010, was named in her honor. Of course, I could spend the entire interview reciting all of Dr. Scott's accolades, so even if I don't mention all of her accomplishments, listeners, please know she has them in spades. Dr. Eugenie Scott, welcome to Shellshocked. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. This week in Shellshocked, we are updating our listeners on the current status of the intelligent design movement in our education system. As listeners may know, it is almost the 10-year anniversary of the, leg- of the legal case Kitzmiller v. Dover, tried in 2005 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which was the first case to test a school district policy requiring the teaching of intelligent design. 
Dr. Scott, the organization, NCSE, for which you were the executive director at the time, served as a pro bono consultant for the plaintiffs. Can you tell us how the uh, NCSE came to be involved in your personal involvement with this case in 2005? NCSE had had uh, Dover on our radar for quite a while. Um, in 2004, the community of Dover, Do- Dover area school board or something. I, I forget exactly. Uh, all the nomenclature is different from district to district, of course. Um, but they, they, there's a little bit of a dust-up that showed up in the, um, in the press, and we picked it up because we monitor that, where a student had, uh, for an art project, had created a mural, you know, the, the striding hominids, the march of progress, the kind of traditional um, uh, picture, uh, erroneous, but nonetheless, <laughs> traditional picture of, of evolution that, that everybody is familiar with. And he'd sort of done his own version. It was, it was you know, pretty darn good for a high school kid, actually. And uh, the teachers had hung it in the science wing. And somebody, later on it was revealed to be the janitor, um, somebody had taken offense and taken it out and burned it. Oh, <laughs> and so goodness. and that made the uh, the press. So we oh we got to keep an eye on this little community here. There may be something else brewing. And indeed, that was in 2004. And indeed, in 2005, uh, more conservative members were elected. Uh, religiously conservative members were elected to the school board, and they set about um, trying to get some form of creationism taught. Um, in the school district, and they did this because in 2005, the district was supposed to approve new science textbooks, and in biology, of course, the biology textbooks include evolution, and the book that the teachers wanted to use was one that was particularly offensive to a couple of the school board members. One member described it as being laced with Darwinism. <laughs> <laughs> so, terrible, um, terrible. He, he wanted, oh, the, yes, scandalous. So he wanted to balance it with the teaching of uh, some form of creationism. Um, we heard about this because uh, in, in you know, made the press and um, uh, the school board in 2005 was was uh, in 2004 actually was was wrestling with um, what textbook to purchase and uh, there was a lot of, of, of fussing during that summer and fall about um, uh, policies that the uh, board wanted to pass that the school teachers were resisting. And ultimately, the um, the school board passed a policy requiring uh, that intelligent design be taught to... Um, to the children in the school, and and there was there, there was a lot more complicated things. The teachers were supposed to read a statement to the students, and there was a purchase of copies of an intelligent design book called "Of Pandas and People," mm-hmm. which um, were purchased by an, uh, a mysterious outside uh, agency and donated to the school board, so the school board didn't have to actually vote on it. The books just kind of showed up, as it were. The teachers refused to use them, and, and uh, the, you know, the teachers were great. <laughs> they were really <laughs> wonderful. But um, because of the teacher pushback, the uh, school board got yet more aggressive about um, uh, teaching of intelligent design, and, and basically things built to a head at, in the fall of 2004, when um, the school board just simply would not compromise and uh, citizens in the community just decided they had to sue. So uh, I got a call from uh, my friend in the uh, Pennsylvania ACLU, Vic Falchik, with whom NCSE had worked uh, back in the 90s, uh, you know, almost a decade before, 
And he said, I suppose you've heard about Dover. <laughs> I said, yeah. yeah we, we were working with some citizens there who were very frustrated. He said, well, we're going to need your help. And I said, obviously, you've got it. And I asked him, I said, do you have, uh, are you working with a commercial law firm yet? Do you have anybody? No, we haven't really, you know, picked out anybody yet. I said, well, uh, by the way, the <clears throat> background for that is that when the ACLU takes on a case, they rarely do it by themselves because they don't have that much money. What they do is they partner with a commercial law firm, and it's NCSE, or it's, <laughs> I wish, <laughs> it's ACLU expertise and whatever expertise exists at the law firm, which is sometimes substantial. But also it's the deep pockets of the commercial law uh, law firm that make these cases possible. So we're very grateful to commercial law firms for stepping up to the um, uh, challenge of, of uh, doing these ACLU cases. So I told Vic that we had a member of the NCSC Legal Advisory Committee who was a lawyer in Pennsylvania. He was at a big firm. I said, let me, I said, I don't really know what his schedule is right now because um, Sometimes, you know, lawyers get bogged down with work, too. I said, let me just send out an, um, a description of what's needed to everybody on the Legal Advisory Committee, uh, even the people who are outside of Pennsylvania. Their law firms have branches within Pennsylvania. I said, I said let, let me see if I can help find somebody who can work with you guys. And he said, fine. So uh, I wrote up a memo to describing the Dover situation. It's going to be a lawsuit. ACLU is looking for a legal um, firm to par partner with. Is anybody, you know, is anybody able to help? Sent it out. Within a couple hours, I got an email back wow. from Eric Rothschild of Pepper Hamilton in Philadelphia, a big law firm that I was thinking of. And he said... Uh, Great minds. He said... <laughs> Don't accept any other offers. <laughs> I want this. <laughs> he said, I, "Yeah." He said, "I'm." That's exactly the. I said, "I'm taking this to my pro bono committee tomorrow morning. The firm's pro bono committee tomorrow morning, and trying. And I'm sure they'll give get a, give approval." I said, "He said, don't accept anybody else's offers. I've been waiting for this for 15 years." Wow. <laughs> so he was very eager. Uh, he. Um, did indeed uh, take the case to his uh, uh, pro bono committee the next morning, and they he called me back a couple hours after the meeting, and he said, we're, we're in. Not only are they in, but they were in to the, you know, for whatever it takes, basically, which is a huge, huge commitment from a law firm for these kinds of cases. And as it happened, they spent millions of dollars on this case. Wow, yeah, I would imagine what was kind of neat about the case, which I don't think many people appreciate, and I didn't until I started working with the lawyers more intimately, is that for most of these pro bono cases, I mean, first of all, everybody probably understands that law firms, the, the legal profession has a uh, ethical responsibility to devote, um, you know, 5%, 10%, some substantial percentage of its time for the good, pro bono. And so all these big law firms and even smaller law firms have um, pro bono responsibilities to the general public. And most of the time these are uh, cases or situations that the partners will assign to the uh, to the associates who are kind of the, the, the young people in the firm who are kind of working their way up the, um, uh, the hierarchy, trying to become partners. 
and you know because it's something that makes that makes uh, young lawyers feel good about the profession. I'm 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 doing something. I'm helping this person solve a rent dispute, or I'm helping this um, this uh, person get custody of children, and you know, I'm doing something worthwhile, and, and I'm applying my legal skills for for the good. In the case of Kitzmiller, all of the people who worked on this case, except for one, were partners, which is an astonishing thing because it's rare that you get that kind of partner commitment for a pro bono case like this, which was one reason, of course, why it was so expensive. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're paying partner rates rather okay. than rather than associate rates, but nonetheless, I mean, you also had that partner expertise. So the legal team consisted of the ACLU of Pepper Hamilton, the law firm, the other um, uh, public interest law firm, uh, Americans, well, not law firm, but uh, nonprofit, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and NCSC. So it was, there was, it was a four-legged table, as it were, that, that we placed our, our expectations on. And it turned out to be a really good um, uh, cooperative endeavor. Everybody worked together very, very well. And we're still good friends. Um, for the first five years of the uh, after Dover, we would all meet in fall to kind of, you know, because we missed each other. <laughs> yes, it was a six-week trial, but it was a year of preparation ahead of time in order to bring it to trial. So we all got to know each other very, very well, the legal team and the plaintiffs. And uh, we, we got together for reunions every fall the first five years after Dover. And we're going to have a reunion for year 10, I assure you. Oh, great. That's going to be much fun. All right. Yeah. Well, so it's been 10 years since the trial. So what updates can you give us about the ramifications and aftershocks of the case? One thing that is most significant from the aftermath of Kitzmiller is that uh, it really put the nail in the coffin of attempts to try to require the teaching of intelligent design by statute or law or regulation. Um, for a couple of years, there were you know it takes a while for the for the when you when when you drop a rock in the middle of the lake, it takes a while for the um, for the waves to reach all the shores. But uh, so there were a few you know last gasp efforts, a few legislatures, a few school districts who uh, didn't get the memo as it were, and who tried to pass policies, but they are, they were immediately shut down. Um, requiring the teaching of intelligent design just is not a strategy that's going to be used anymore, and in a way, it's kind of ironic because the um, the Kitzmiller case was never appealed. Um, it never went to a multi-state uh, or multi-federal district appeals court. It obviously never went to the Supreme Court. It is precedent only in the Middle District of Pennsylvania, which is a tiny little mm-hmm. little federal district court area. But the the power of the decision, the the decision is so strong and so complete and so well written and deals with such a wide variety of issues from legal to scientific and uh, uh, whatever's in between um, that pretty much uh, anybody taking a, anybody with a legal understanding taking a look at this uh, decision is going to say, look, if we pass a policy requiring the teaching of intelligent design, we're going to get sued and we're going to lose because these same arguments are going to sink any policy. 
So even though Dover was never appealed and isn't precedent beyond a very narrow district, it is still hugely influential in the country in terms of discouraging the kinds of um, uh, de jure, if you will, uh, teaching of intelligent design. That said, I can say with high confidence that intelligent design is being taught somewhere in the United States today because a great deal of the teaching of creationism or intelligent design is under the radar. And um, if when you have a policy, that puts it right on the map and we can go after it. When it's just a teacher who decides to freelance, then uh, you know, if everybody in the community thinks this is a great idea, nobody's going to complain, it's not going to make the papers, it's not going to reach us. Um, being NCSE, uh, it's not going to uh, uh, surface. So if you you can't deal with what you don't know, that's unfortunate. Well, but having said that, then how do you feel about the future of science education in our classrooms? Uh, being such a strong advocate for uh, teaching. Well, science? you know, just in general, science education across the board, not just dealing with with uh, evolution specifically. Um, there have been a number of very positive uh, uh, changes in science education in the United States. Um, the um, uh, growth of the standards movement in which uh, states would agree uh, from state to state to adopt the same kinds of general principles uh, and um, practices, uh, both content as well as, as how you teach science. Um, there's there's a lot more agreement uh, now than there was say 20 years ago, and it's taken about 20 years. Uh, you know, education is a huge institution in the United States, and like all big battleships, it's slow to turn. Right, <laughs> so uh, the standards movement has actually been very good for. Um, um, standardizing uh, science education across the country, at least on paper, you know, um, if if there is a, a tendency for uh, uh, life science classes to be to cover um, evolution and cells and photosynthesis and genetics uh, in middle school and then uh, in high school. Uh, from state to state, uh, that's when you get into molecular biology and the, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then at least a kid that goes from one state to another is not going to be just totally lost and uh, miss huge, huge swaths of, of science education because they moved at the wrong time and every state had their own set of, of, of uh, standards. Now, that doesn't mean curriculum is the same, that uh, teachers... Um, Different districts will clearly have uh, different ways of teaching uh, these topics. But but I think it's a very good idea to have the general standards from state to state. Perhaps most important, though, in the standards movement is the stress upon teaching science as a way of knowing, uh, the methodology of science. And the big shift in the last 20 years has been towards making science more brains-on, hands-on, and less just drill and kill and memorization which certainly was the case when I was in high school and junior high. Now it's much more, well, how would we, how would we figure out how this works? Or how would we figure out, uh, how would we explain this? And the students will actually do some open-ended um, uh, exercises to try to understand not just how the particular principle works, but how you ask questions, how you act like a scientist, 
how you ask questions and answer them. And that's probably the most important thing for science education is not that we have students who have memorized how many planets there are and what is the diameter of Pluto, but that they actually understand how it is that scientists go about their business and how they themselves can benefit from this kind of, uh, of critical thinking. Now, the question, now, so we've got the standards in every state. The problem is getting them implemented. And, again, this battleship steers slowly, and it does take a while uh, for these ideas to trickle down. The biggest problem is that teaching this way, teaching with experiential education, is more expensive. And you need stuff, you know, you need uh, manipulatives for students, you need laboratories for students, you need to uh, slow down and take the time to really make sure kids understand the process as well as the uh, memorized concepts. And then, of course, in order to evaluate students, the, the, the evil T-word test, in order to evaluate students' understanding, that is more expensive, too, because you can't just give a kid a bubble-on test, a, a bubble-in you know, scan sheet, if you want to understand whether a kid really knows how to set up a test for uh, finding out something about the natural world. And you might have noticed we're at a time in our history where we don't want to spend money on anything. Uh, and education is being starved pretty much all over the country. Um, and at a time when actually more money is needed for education, we're cutting back. And that's, I think, going to stymie the, the improvements of science education that we've seen developing over the last 20 years. That was kind of a long answer to your question, yeah, but right. I think I think I'm I'm vaguely you know I I think by and large I'm hopeful, um, but I think we need to really support uh, science education and all education in a manner that it deserves. We're not doing that yet. Here, here. Um, well, where can uh, people find uh, go to find out more on any of these topics uh, that we talked about and to see what you are up to? I would suggest that anybody wanting to know about especially evolution education but also climate change education and the problems surrounding both of these issues, uh, go to the National Center for Science Education website, which is ncse.com. And there's a wealth of information there, as well as a really good uh, blog page competition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the, the blog uh, link at the top of the page in the, um, in the uh, uh, teacher bar there um, it will take you to the uh, wonderful NCSE blog, which is um, Science League of America. It's got to be the single best title for a <laughs> blog ever. Uh, Shawshank's pretty darn good, I have to say, but uh, Science League of America is at ncse.com, and I would strongly urge people to read that as well as the other resources on NCSE's website. Great. Well, uh, Dr. Eugene Scott, it's really been a true delight to speak with you today. And thank you for being my first ever interview. I will always remember that. Well, I will listen to Shellshocked for more of your interviews. I'm looking forward to that, too. Thanks, Marilyn. Thank you. The Science Report.
It's probably of no surprise to most people that the most varied animal on the planet is the domesticated dog, Canis familiaris. They come in all shapes and sizes, dozens of colors and coat patterns, and many even have behavioral traits that make them perfectly suited to specific tasks, such as protection, herding, hunting, or even just being affectionate. The importance of our relationship with dogs cannot be overstated. Some scientists even believe that humans may not have survived at all as a species if we hadn't forged this important and close bond with man's best friend many thousands of years ago. So it's no small question to ask, where did it all start? When we think of dog variation and their domestication by humans, it's natural to imagine people over the centuries selectively breeding them for specific physical traits, causing them to look very different from the wolves from which they evolved. But research over the past few decades has called those assumptions into question. And it began not with the dog itself, but with its distant cousin, the fox. And one experiment in particular, which began in Soviet Russia, has provided some very intriguing answers. The year was 1959, and the purpose of the breeding program was a simple one to create foxes that were less aggressive than their wild counterparts. Led by the Russian geneticist Dmitry K. Belev, this team set about testing foxes provided by furriers for their relative tameness. Close to 99% were moderately to extremely aggressive, growling, nipping, and even biting or showing serious fear response to humans. The 1% who showed little or no aggression or fear were chosen for the study. Once breeding began, it was a simple matter of choosing the least aggressive of the fox pups to breed with each other and on and on. The consequences were striking. Within only three successive generations, the aggressive behaviors began to disappear. And in a relatively short period of time, the resulting foxes were not only as tame as modern domestic dogs, but also showed other behavioral traits that we've come to expect from man's best friend. They whined and yipped in excited anticipation of being petted or to having attention shown. They rubbed against or burrowed into humans in an attempt to be touched or held, and even followed you around. What's more, the researchers convinced themselves that these traits were the result of biology in a series of related studies. In one, they took the pups of aggressive foxes and added them into the litters of those being raised by tame mothers. The results showed that the foxes still grew into aggressive adults, despite being raised by tame mothers. The same held true even when the embryos of aggressive foxes were implanted into the wombs of tame mothers, providing very strong evidence that the aggression was not learned, but genetic. Perhaps even more enlightening was that it wasn't only the fox's behavior and temperament that had changed as a result of this study. Just a few generations in, scientists started to notice that the normal patterns of coloration and physical qualities of the fox's coats had also changed. Their tails were even becoming increasingly short and curly as opposed to long and straight. And some even retained the floppy ears of their youth well into adulthood. And even their limbs started to be shortened with each generation. 
In fact, in many ways, these tame foxes had begun to look like dogs. Dr. Brian Hare, a professor of anthropology, believes that these results clearly show that breeding for tameness, physical changes naturally follow. And according to him, the many morphological differences we see between modern dogs and wolves were likely side effects of selective breeding for temperament and not for physical traits. This position is supported by the fact that the physical changes reported are not random. Instead, they are the traits of youth. Young animals often have mottled fur, short limbs and floppy ears, and a general cuteness we often associate with youth, as well as less aggression and more demonstration of affection. And these differences between domesticated breeds and their wild counterparts are not limited to dogs and wolves. Many other animals have also shown these morphological changes due to domestication, such as wavy or curly hair in horses and goats, rolled tails in dogs and pigs, and earlier reproductive maturity in nearly all domestic breeds. In short, domestic animals in many ways are like juvenile versions of their wild counterparts. So even though selective breeding isn't exactly the same as natural selection, studies like this are shedding even more light on the complex interplay between selective pressures and the power of genes to adapt in ways that affect physical as well as behavioral traits. And who knows, perhaps someday we'll all evolve past the need for simple, superstitious answers as to the origins of the many species on our planet, and we'll come to rely upon the much more interesting answers provided by science. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is The Good News. This week's story is about the young activist, Zach Coplin. For the past eight years, this 21-year-old Rice University student has been fighting to keep creationism out of Louisiana's science classrooms. By doing so, he has become Louisiana's state governor and presidential hopeful, Bobby Jindal's biggest troll. It all started in the summer of 2008, right after Coplin's freshman year at Baton Rouge High School. He remembers the day that the Louisiana Science Education Act, or LSEA, became law. He was sitting in the family car, pulling off the shin guards after soccer tryouts, when a family friend, the editorial writer for his local paper, The Advocate, walked by. Coplin heard him ask his dad, Did you hear that Jindal signed the creationism bill? Coplin couldn't believe it. For most of his life, his family had known Bobby Jindal. Jindal and his father had worked together under Governor Mike Foster, and his parents had been friends with Jindal and his wife, Supriya. The Jindals still send the family a Christmas card every year. When Jindal first ran for governor in 2003, when Coplin was a fifth grader, he talked up his campaign to his classmates at the University Lab School, the same school that Jindal's own children now attend. Earlier in that 2008 summer, the creationism bill had come up at the dinner table, and the Copland family was sure that the governor would veto it. They knew him. He wasn't a creationist. He was a Brown University biology major. But Jindal wanted to run for president, so he became a creationist. 
Soon after the act was passed, some Louisiana teachers began to not just supplement existing texts, but to rid the classroom of established science books altogether. It was during the process to adopt a new life science textbook in 2010 that creationists barraged Louisiana State Board of Education with complaints about the evidence-based science texts. Suddenly it appeared that they were going to be successful in throwing out science textbooks. This was a pivotal moment for me, Copland has said. He had always been a shy kid and had never spoken out before, but he found himself speaking at a meeting of an advisory committee to the State Board of Education and urging them to adopt good science textbooks. And he won. The LSEA still stood, but at least the science books could stay. No one was more surprised of his becoming a science advocate than Copland himself. In fact, after writing his English research paper on the LSEA in 2008, when he was just 14 years old, mind you, he assumed that someone else would publicly take on the law. But no one did. I didn't expect it to be me, he said. By my senior year, though, I realized that no one was going to take on the law. So for my high school senior project, I decided to get a repeal bill. Indeed, it was the ensuing coverage of the science textbook adoption issue that launched Copland as an activist. It also gave him the confidence to start the campaign to repeal the LSEA. Encouraged by Barbara Forrest, a philosophy professor at Southeastern Louisiana University and a staunch critic of intelligent design in the Discovery Institute, Copland decided to write a letter that could be signed by Nobel laureate scientists in support of the repeal. To that end, he contacted Sir Harry Croto, a British chemist who shared the 1996 Nobel Prize in Chemistry with Robert Curl and Richard Smalley. Croto helped him to draft the letter, one that has now been signed by 78 Nobel laureates. In addition, Copland has introduced two bills to repeal the LSEA, both of which have been sponsored by State Senator Karen Carter-Peterson. And along with the Nobel laureates, he has the support of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, New Orleans City Council, and many others. It has become such a significant factor in his life that last spring he even made it permanent and tattooed it on his ribcage, the bill number, State Bill 74, as a strand of DNA. Now that's commitment. But as the early results of his efforts have shown, it's not going to be an easy battle. He has had gains over the last few years, but his first attempt to repeal the LSEA was defeated 5-1 in committee, and his second attempt he lost 2-1. Copland was hoping to get out of committee this spring. However, in April, once again, the Senate voted to reject the bill 4-3. There has been one important court case in Louisiana over teaching creationism. A Buddhist student, C.C. Lane, in Sabine Parish, Louisiana, was taught creationism in his science class and told that evolution was a stupid theory that stupid people made up because they don't want to believe in God. C.C.'s science tests included a question which said, isn't it amazing what the blank has made? And students were expected to write in Lord. Unbelievable. Teachers and administrators in the school district also mocked Cece for being Buddhist, and the superintendent of the school system suggested he convert to Christianity or transfer to a school with, quote, more Asians, unquote. The school district settled the case out of court and agreed to a consent decree to stop promoting religion, so the Louisiana Science Education Act wasn't directly addressed. 
Copland spoke to the lawyer for the Sabine Parish School District, Neil Johnson, during the case, and he told him that he viewed the Science Education Act as a viable defense that he intended to use. A year after the case was settled, Copland spoke to Johnson again, and while he didn't remember the exact specifics of how he would have used the law if it had been raised, it would have been turned over to the Attorney General to defend, which is exactly the purpose of the LSEA, a liability shift from the individual teacher who broke the law onto the state, which encourages teachers to teach creationism. C.C. and his father, Scott, testified to the Senate Education Committee about their experience in Sabine Parish and it urged them to repeal the Science Education Act. When asked why he thought the bill got rejected again and why this act has been so hard to kill, Copland answered that he believes it is a simple question of courage. He has demonstrated that this law is humiliating his state publicly. Nobel laureate Sir Harry Croto called Louisiana a laughingstock because of this law. He has demonstrated that scientists are against it. 78 Nobel laureates have called for its repeal. LSU's former graduate dean of science, Kevin Carman, testified that scientists had left LSU or refused to take jobs in Louisiana because of this law. He has also demonstrated that creationism is being taught. He has met every bar that the legislature has set to repeal this law, and they've refused to meet their end of the bargain. In part, Copland believes it's because Louisiana has creationists in the legislature, like Senator Elbert Guillory, who didn't want to take witch doctors out of science class. This year, Senator Guillory accused scientists of burning people alive for believing the earth was round and that the earth rotated the sun. Senator J.P. Morrill had to correct him that the church had actually done that. Senator Mike Walsworth, who also voted against the repeal, once demanded to be shown evidence that E. coli turned into people. What? But it's also because people are afraid of the religious right, which wields a great amount of influence in Louisiana. Senator Conrad Appel, the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, is not a creationist, but he cast the deciding vote against the bill and for creationism. Copland says, I can't speak for what's in his mind and in his heart, but I believe he voted the way he did because of the undue influence that right-wing religious groups wield in this state. I'm not sure if I will ever convince someone like Senator Walsworth, but I believe that politicians who aren't creationists must stand up and vote to make sure their students are taught real science. Because of this stance, Copland can't forgive Jindal for signing the creationism law. Its language was written by the Discovery Institute, a creationist think tank which drafted a model academic freedom act that became the Louisiana Science Education Act. Academic freedom has been a classic creationist smokescreen for promoting religion. Barbara Forrest, the foremost historian of modern creationism, told Copland, academic freedom is creationist code language for teaching creationism in public school science classes. She traced it back to 1979 when creationist attorney Wendell Byrd included it in his resolution for balanced presentation of evolution and scientific creationism, which became the basis for the balanced treatment legislation. This older balanced treatment legislation, predating the LSEA, mandated that creationism be taught wherever evolution was taught, and it was passed in a number of states, including Louisiana. 
The Louisiana law, the Balanced Treatment for Evolution Science and Creation Science Act, was thrown out by the Supreme Court in the Edwards v. Aguilard ruling in 1987, which invalidated the teaching of creationism in public schools. Forrest noted that the Supreme Court explicitly rejected the Louisiana's law academic freedom rationale in the Edwards ruling. Jindal has embraced this academic freedom motif when discussing creationism in the Louisiana Science Education Act. Copland has asked Jindal spokeswoman Shannon Bates about why the governor believed it was appropriate to teach creationism in public schools, and she told them, We think children should learn every notion with regard to the origin of the universe and mankind. Evolution, creationism, Big Bang theory, you name it. In a discussion with NBC's Education Nation about the LSEA, Jindal said, Let's teach our kids about intelligent design. What are we scared of? But what are Jindal's own children actually learning? Bates told Copland that the governor hopes his children are exposed to all kinds of different science and theories. Whatever the governor may hope, his kids are attending one of the best schools in Louisiana, and they are only being taught evolution. Copland knows because he had their 7th grade biology teacher, Katherine Cummings, himself, and she makes a point to emphasize real science. Unfortunately, many other students in Louisiana aren't so lucky. A national poll showed that 13% of American public school science teachers teach creationism outright. 60% defy the National Research Council's recommendation to endorse evolution over creationism. In Louisiana, where the Science Education Act protects teachers who break the law, it can be harder for many students to learn evolution. Maybe Jindal does parent the way he practices politics when it comes to his own kids. Last fall, when Stephen Colbert criticized Jindal's creationist retreat from knowledge, Jindal shot back. He tweeted, Missed your show last night. Was too busy pulling out pages on evolution in my kids' biology textbooks. Copland knows Jindal was trying to make a joke, but for years he has watched his creationist policies deny students across Louisiana a science education, so it felt like it could be true. Copland assured Jindal's kids are intelligent, capable, and hardworking, and they're learning evolution. In fact, in the governor, they probably have an excellent science tutor. They might even go to Brown University and major in biology, just like their father. He just hopes that unlike their dad, they never embrace pseudoscience because of their presidential ambition. Although Copland still has three credit hours left at Rice, he has continued to keep the pressure on Jindal. He has published six pieces at Slate in just the last seven months, four of which focused on the former family friend. And he expects to continue churning out stories as the race for the Republican presidential nomination heats up. His struggle has affected him personally. He has had to build some incredible armor over the years. He has been criticized on pretty much every aspect of how he looks, speaks, or what he says. But it's now really easy for him to ignore. He also really marvels at people's capacity to hate people that they don't know. Ultimately, Copland thinks facing nastiness comes with the Tory of putting yourself out there to make positive change. And you have to roll with the punches. Despite a series of setbacks and the feeling that he's continually losing battles, Coppin still feels he'll win the war. I wish him the best of luck. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News.
Well, kids, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and for all your comments on Facebook and Twitter. If you haven't done so already, please do spread the word so that even more people can find out about us and tune in. We have some exciting new projects in the works, including an interview with famed UFO researcher Robert Schaefer, actress and outspoken trans activist Cassandra Cass, and even a team of skeptical ghost hunters named Brian and Baxter, who I'm sure will have some bizarre stories to tell. I also want to thank all the fans who stopped me to say hello at the amazing meeting last week in Las Vegas. It was a mind-blowing weekend, and it's so heartening to know that so many attendees were listening to Shell Shock and seemed to be enjoying it. Oh, and if you'll be in the Bay Area on Monday, August 3rd, you might want to get yourself over to the show notes right now and get tickets to hear friend of the show, Dr. Eugenie Scott, deliver a talk for the Commonwealth Club entitled, Why Do People Reject Good Science? I'm sure it will be a wonderful and thought-provoking presentation you won't want to miss, and I'll be right there in the front row. Thanks once again, and until next week, you've been shell-shocked.